My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides. Making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy, while still maintaining respect for the art. Which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom coming to you again from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Man, we are still trucking along here. This is great. If you haven't checked out our recent theater horror stories, go back and check those out. Those are a fun little short listen for your day. And we're going to be cranking more of those out here as we go along. But today, for another full-length episode, coming to me from Minneapolis is my friend Ricky Coates. Hello, Ricky. Hello, Aaron. You have established yourself in Minneapolis in the theater world, but you have a really cool company that is run by you and your wife, Sadie. So tell me a little yes. bit about that. It's called Math Theater, M-A-T-H-E-A-T-R-E. It's like a Venn diagram of math and theater shoved together. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I mean, that's literally our logo. Uh, so we use live theater to inspire excitement about math and science. So we put on musicals. Uh, based around uh, mathematical or mathematicians or scientists, or uh, we also have like a live planetarium musical. So it's like a full dome musical inside of a planetarium about the Voyager mission. Whoa, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's, it is spectacular in all the, all the senses of the word. Spectacular. Oh, man. oh, that's such a clever idea. Like that is an an unused space like you know you're like oh it's only for you know uh planetarium shows but nope we can do something else there That's <laughs> or awesome. people are like oh or we can just go and do listen to some, psych some psychedelic music but right yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we opened Under it at the fisk theater in boulder just this last year in 2021 oh wow uh, and we're hoping to tour it to other planetary actually we are going to planet tour it to other planetaria across the world we're heading to new york in april that is so cool that is yeah, such a yeah. good idea and yeah and, and now and as i look through your website and on your social media and stuff you two have actually played a lot of really cool characters from history yeah. um like i saw you played nikola tesla mm -hmm. uh sadie was able to play madame curie is that right yep yeah oh, so we wow. So basically we, I mean, we have a catalog of musicals that we tour around the world, literally mm -hmm. around the world. So uh, we've got a musical about Marie Curie. Uh, it's kind of, it's a chemistry themed musical where we use chemistry concepts to kind of highlight as, and as metaphor, just the life of this really extraordinary woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we also have a new musical about Nikola Tesla and his mother 
because he credits his uneducated mother as his greatest inspiration that she was the greatest inventor. Yeah. That she was the greatest inventor that he's ever known. Uh, So we have a musical about the two of them that the musical that has been running the longest since 2006 is calculus. The musical Sadie wrote that (laughs) with, with our, with one of our other friends. Uh, Yeah, it is. It is. It's calculus formulas put to music uh, oh my and, word! Right, and then woven into a story about the you know, basically about the the history of calculus. Oh um, wow! And we're we're now going to so that is going to live on in perpetuity, probably in video, because we're about to replace that with a, a broader show because that show is for calculus students, right? Like, I mean, you can it's really <laughs> yeah, fun, oh, but everyone absolutely. else is going to be like. Yeah, that was fun. I have no clue what you were saying. Yeah. So, that, so, so our new show is going to be about uh, Emily Du Châtelet. I mean, you may know her because she was uh, she and Voltaire were romantic together. Oh, okay, okay, yes. Yeah. So, so right. she was his mistress, or, and and he was her her lover. So, uh, okay. the, the two of them, the two of them, basically, they they built this castle where they did scientific experiments and they spend most of their lives being lovers or, and then later on best friends. Okay. Um, Okay. But she was a very, she's a very, very famous physicist and mathematician in France. She translated uh, Newton's Principia into French and then added her own, uh, had her, added her own index and other thoughts and stuff. So she's a very famous mathematician, right? Okay. Actually, actually, if you ever want to like go down a really crazy <laughs> rabbit hole, okay. just check out a book on the two of them because they just had crazy escapades from like oh, wow. from France <laughs> to Russia, from like uh, all kinds of stuff where he's getting in trouble and she and she's like playing card games to try to win him and or, or oh, you know win his freedom word. and stuff. Like it's crazy. Uh, this is sounding a lot like uh, episode 20 that I did on uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and doing uh, private lives in 1983. And all they <laughs> did was just cause havoc all over the globe. But anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the two of them were, they were, she was, she was probably a little, aside from, she loved to gamble and she loved to do math. So it meant that sometimes she dressed up as a man to walk into salons and talk math with the people there. Wow. Uh, but I mean, he was the, usually the one getting in trouble, you know. Yeah, he's yeah. Voltaire. He's Voltaire. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, that is a, that's amazing. Anyway, I, I yeah. love that. that that's yeah. So we're gonna do a show about her, and then that mm-hmm. that'll and it'll be a little bit more broad math in general, right? Like mm-hmm. the the greatest hits of the mathematical world, and we're calling it uh, Amelie's sarcastic dramatic mathematics playlist. That's easy to put on a T-shirt. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Says though. the guy wearing that. a t-shirt full of, of Shakespeare insults. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten quite a few people check out my abs that way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any abs. Okay. Well, Ricky, I want to get into the topic here today. And I think, okay. you know, hearing about math theater and everything, it's going to fit really well. Now, okay. I did prompt you mm-hmm. <laughs> that... I was going to ask you this question and that's, you know, just give it a little food for thought. So you're not so put on the spot, but of all of the innovations that have been made throughout theater history, what Mm -hmm. is one that you believe is not given enough thought? It's fairly recent and it's one close to my heart. Okay. But the fringe festival. Yes. Okay. Uh, Okay. That's, 
like I've done many a fringe festival. I have a lot of friends that do the fringe circuit. Uh, mm-hmm. Sadie and I met at the at a fringe festival. It's, it's a history that I didn't. I mean, I didn't even really know what fringe festivals were until right. my time in Seattle when I had a, a theater company called Theater Simple. Mm-hmm. They took me to the Edmonton Fringe Festival, and I was like, "What? There are hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people that come to watch fringe theater." Mm-hmm. You and I know because we met yeah. doing a yeah. fringe show. It wasn't it wasn't at a festival, but fringe theater is basically like it, you know it's the more experimental theater. It's not right. so generally right. not in the broad big houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it it is. It's experimental theater. Sometimes it's it, generally people say it's low budget, but that doesn't necessarily have to be what it is. It's no, it's, no. But it's new new works, a little more experimental, pushing the pushing the boundaries of what theater right. is. And it's where a lot of young actors and young artists and scenic technicians and everything, that's where they get their start in uh-huh. stuff like this. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, being able to give a lot of credit to that in a broader sense, like, hey, this is yeah. part of the theater world, too. You know, it's it's nothing to be scoffed at, I'll say. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. If anyone knows of a Fringe Festival, it's probably the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, yep. right? Like that is yep. the big one. And that is the oldest one. Uh-huh. Um, from what I know, it was established after World War II. So after World War II, uh-huh. Edinburgh was like, we're going to have this big arts festival and we're going to invite all these really prominent theater people and, and, and arts people to come perform there. Yeah. And it caught the attention of, of uninvited theater people that were like, uninvited yep. theater companies like, well, why didn't you invite me? Because I'm so small and I do theater that you don't deem as like professional enough. Oh, like, it's not, it's big not enough. your bag. Ooh. Right. Like, or it's not, <laughs> it's not commercial enough. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but, but, you know, there was this big festival going on at Edinburgh. So they just, you know, used little storefronts, little pop-up places, you know, they made their, they made a, a festival separate from the big arts festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is where the fringe got its start. Like then they just kind of yep. kept it going, kept it going. Um, and then the same thing happened in, in Adelaide, Australia in like the uh-huh. 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Where also there was this big arts festival where they invited all these commercially professional people. And the companies there were like, we are just as good as these people. We're just not as right. we're just not as commercial. So yeah. we're gonna start a fringe festival here. And so <laughs> they did that. And so <laughs> Now you have Edinburgh and Adelaide, which are now the biggest fringe festivals in the world. Right. Uh, and they're constantly competing on which one is bigger. But now, I mean, fast forward many, many years later, now in the 80s and 90s, now instead of being an alternative to arts festivals, you just have fringe festivals popping up. And Right. Uh, it's a market. I mean, it's a, yeah. a, a venerable market at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So like, uh, I mean, I did the Canadian fringe circuit because mm-hmm. Canada has a wonderful circuit of fringe festivals. Oh yeah. And just a great theater culture anyway. Yeah. And it's all like, and their, their mission is that it's unjuried. So mm-hmm. anyone can apply with whatever they want. It is 100% accessible. So anyone who wants to see a show can see a show. And then the, the last tenant is that 100% of ticket sales have to go to the artist. Oh, nice. Yeah. You see, like you said, you see some of the best like theater. Cause you, you see these, like these people, like couples just rolling in and putting on yep. a, putting on a play that they devised in their basement and it's mind blowing and amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you see some of the worst theater you've ever seen. Yep. <laughs> Which is Which, also completely yep. useful because absolutely, I find sometimes that walking out of a, a show and being like, why didn't that work? Why was yep. that so terrible is yep. just as enlightening as watching something that you're like, that was brilliant. 
Yep, absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, anyway, getting back to the topic today, we're going to be talking about, uh, we probably don't think about these too much because we take them for granted. Uh-huh. But I'm going to go... Um, I'm going to go back quite a bit. I mean, today's topic uh, does require just a bit of exposition. So here we go. We have to go back quite a ways in history to start. On May 29th, 1453, after 55 days of siege, Ottoman Turks broke through the defenses of the Byzantine capital city of Constantinople and took control of the city. That's a benchmark in history. We all kind of like, yeah, I don't remember the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they, the, the Turks took over and made it Istanbul. Great time um, for theater. Yeah, yeah. Great time for theater. Now, while I could go on and on about the aftermath of the battle, what it has to do with the story today is in what left Constantinople. Uh, so you see, I, would, <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say it was my date because I had a date in Constantinople, but now she's in Istanbul. No. Oh, Sorry. That was amazing. I love they might be giants. Uh -huh, you should. So anyway. What happened is, you see, in that city, the scholars had kept and studied many of the classical texts left over from the ancient Greece and Rome. And the sacking of Constantinople was a relatively peaceful transition. Like they didn't, you know, murder a whole bunch of people once they took control of the city. They just went, all right, get out. So, oh, so they, they still evicted everyone. Yeah, yeah. They kicked them out. They just didn't kill them in mass or okay. burn them or burn their houses to the ground or anything They're like so we we run the city now and you guys are out just go and take your stuff with you oh okay just the leaders like yeah yeah the rest the rest of you peasants can stick around and yeah work, yeah and make sure us now you work for us now but but the yeah uh the people who are running the city piss off so many greek scholars that were forced out of constantinople they resettled further western europe and many back in their homeland in greece but a large number of them immigrated to Italy and brought the classical texts with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was particularly coincidental. And I'm going to water down history a lot here so we can get to the central topic today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a I have a talent for this on this show where people are like, wow, you really glossed over a lot. I'm like, yeah, but I hit the parts that matter. One of the greatest shifts in culture as Europe transitioned from the medieval age to the Renaissance was a shift from the religious to the secular. Right. So not everything sure. had to be about church. You could talk about what's going on in your daily life. I mean, during the Middle Ages, most people saw themselves as fulfilling a role in a feudal society, but mainly using their lives to prepare for a good afterlife. Mainly throughout the Renaissance, the focus changed to what humans could be capable of during their lifetimes, mm. rather than focusing on what will happen after you die. So hey, here's a sidebar. Theater was actually pretty influential in this as well, as theater was allowed to practice outside the church by the end of the medieval age. Wow. And so, yeah. So even though most of the plot lines still had to deal with religious stories or tales uh -huh. of moral exploration, the yeah. big deal in theater was the shift from religious to secular. Mm. So anyway, I digress. Now, most of the people who are shaping this culture of humanism, you know, the philosophy that human acts matter in the present rather than everything has to be to, you know, prepare your room in heaven or hell. You never know which way you're going to go. These people, they recalled that all of this thought about what happens today in the present also happened in the past at some point. Oh, yeah. During the Greek and Roman eras. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Did some classical texts just come on over? Hey, what? Wow. This is amazing. So yeah, for all these Greek scholars emigrating from Constantinople to Italy, like I said earlier, it was a marvelous coincidence. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, many reshaping the culture got themselves intimately reacquainted with many of the classic works from Greek and Roman eras, and these texts formed many of the schools of thought developed during the Renaissance. And of course, at the time, a lot of them still existed in the parts that like didn't come directly from Constantinople, but a lot of them were only available in formal schooling, which a lot of people couldn't afford, or they were just sequestered away in hidden abbeys and in monasteries and you couldn't touch them. <laughs> well, and then you also have the problem that they were written in languages that a lot of people couldn't read, right? Right, right, because they couldn't get the education. And yep. yes. Yep. Okay. So now that general culture was more about what was going on in the present, ways of expressing and recording the air quotes now became all the rage. So here is where we swing into the arts. <laughs> Just see like, Yay. okay, yeah, okay. Exposition over. Good. Let's well, get see, to the meat of the- this. This is the thing that, well, okay. So when I tell people about our company, sorry to mm-hmm. bring it back mm-hmm. to math theater, because we don't shy away from science in our shows, right? We literally no. sing about science and we tell, but we tell it through story. And people are like, well, how? That, that that's, They don't see that with the, the connection. I'm like, but it's all connected, right? It's all connected. Right? Like you, you can't really, you can't be like, oh, in a vacuum, here are these, here's what the arts was doing in the Renaissance without having the backstory of like, right. well, there are these people that are coming from Constantinople. Because especially with our education, we kind of we kind of s- separate everybody, right? Like you go to English yes. class and then you go to math class and then you go to yep. history class. And it's not really taught that all these things are holistic and, and connected. And not yep. only that, but they're changing all the time. Yes, yes. Right? Like, the periodic, mm-hmm. the periodic table changes, or it, I mean, at this point, it's not changing as much as it was, but right, like, right. for like hundred years, it was changing all the time. Or like mm-hmm. every picture that you have ever seen of Neptune and Uranus has probably mm-hmm. come from one, from one spacecraft from Voyager Wait, 2. What? Oh my yeah. God. Voyager 2 is the only spacecraft that's ever been to those outer planets. Oh, and it whoa. happened. And it happened when we were when we were alive, right? Like yeah, I was right. growing up. Oh when my those god! Those pictures were being taken. That's crazy. Anyway, oh my! But, <laughs> but, these, but these are the things. Like we we, mm-hmm. we think everything's so set in stone, or like everything's just so separated. But like right. you need that exposition because it's right. part. It's part of mm-hmm. the art. Yep. Yep. Anyway, my digression over. Nope. No, that's that's a perfect place for us to keep going here. Okay, so. As you were saying, visual arts in particular focused on a much more realistic style in recording the world, okay? I mean, if you compare medieval art to Renaissance art, there is a huge change. Like, you have these figures in medieval art where maybe it's like Christ carrying the cross, and behind Christ, you can see like the vague outline of maybe a wall or a balustrade or, uh, or a city, but it doesn't, it, it's just like, it's representational. You're going, okay, so Christ is in a city, but I can't tell how far he is from that wall. I can't tell if that wall is made out of brick or stone or what it's made of. I can just tell it's a wall. So during the medieval era, virtually any human figure was flat and displayed in only like a basic sense of shape and form. Like you got the shape of a face, maybe a hand, you could see that there were five fingers on it, but you know, it wasn't like it was photorealistic. That's where we took a big turn in the Renaissance when they're going, we have to record how things are now. 
So now I need to get a little bit more photorealistic. And humans were shown in dim with dimension and depth, here meaning that figures could be represented in a three-dimensional manner on a flat surface, which mm -hmm. had almost never happened before. Like the, one of the earliest things that they looked at was Trajan's Column, which is this incredibly tall pillar and you can see that there is actually some dimension in the carving so that's where they went okay so we we need to take that idea and go none of this would have been possible without the works and writings of the architect ah oh, i get to put on my italian here it's great filippo brunelleschi 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 he was the one that came up with the idea of the vanishing point now are wait, you familiar wait. with that we don't talk about brunelleschi we don't talk about Bruno no, no, Leski. <laughs> wow, timely. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> so the concept of van the vanishing point, the best way I can describe it is this without like showing you visually. <laughs> Here we are in an audio format and I'm like, just put this in your head. Okay. So imagine standing in the crosswalk of a long street in a big city. Now, if you look either way down the street, it would seem that the buildings on both sides of the street eventually meet somewhere down the distance, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so the vanishing point. But if you look directly in front of you, you know that the building behind you and the building in front of you are across the street from each other and standing parallel to one another, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So you know sure. that these parallel lines aren't actually converging somewhere. It just, in a visual sense, looks like that. Sure, yeah. Brunelleschi reason that this is how the real world could be represented in visual art, particularly mm. in painting. Mm -hmm. So basically you take a flat surface and you can just run lines from one point to a single vanishing point. And uh -huh. now you have, now you have dimension. Yeah. Brilliant. Theater. Here we go. I'll just flat out say it. The written works that have survived from the Italian Renaissance weren't great. <laughs> They try to think of one. Yeah, they're they just they're not well done. But their major contribution, in my estimation, there there are several. What we got from the Italian Renaissance was Commedia dell'arte. So any oh, of you, yeah. who, any of you who like cartoons like Looney Tunes, we couldn't <laughs> have had that without Commedia dell'arte. Stock characters who we know what they're going to probably do. We know how the thing is probably going to turn out. They're just given a different set of circumstances all the time. Uh -huh. So, And they're constantly know. performing physical comedy, which yep. they called Lotzi, which yep. we as audience are like, oh, I can totally see what's going to happen. Oh, oh, man. Oh, he's, he's going to climb up that ladder and it's going to go nowhere. Oh, uh -huh. you know, okay. We got opera, which mm, yeah. now is more of a music study, even though it's performed written dialogue work architecture of the theater space and scenic design innovations and that's where we're headed today oh so from science from visual art we get we get italian artists really pushing the envelope here and going to some incredible lengths just to establish perspective nice here we go so, like I said, we're not really going to talk about Commedia or Opera today, but Commedia, I could see being in its own episode in the future because it's just really fun to talk about. Oh, heck yeah. So, let's talk architecture. Okay. <laughs> but this is one of those places where those of us in the present have a hard time understanding why it took so long for ideas to change. <laughs> I mean, 
I, get I don't know. I feel like ideas are really <laughs> hard to change now anyway. Yeah, like, but I mean, like, I get a new iPhone every couple of years, you know? Uh, I mean, software programs become irrelevant after, like, three or four years, you know? Uh, sure. so, so, I mean, without a lot of the distractions that we have technology-wise today in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, you go, guys, just come on, let's get to it here. You have the idea sitting right in front of you. Let's go. Uh -huh. I, you know. Well, I mean, we can see that. We can <laughs> right? say that because, but like, okay, I'm going to use video games as, as, as a model, right? Perfect. Because like when, when computers were not very great at processing, we've had, you know, block Mario jumping up and down trying to get right. Donkey Kong, right? Yeah. Right. And now, now we can like basically put on a headset and be inside of, of yep. you know, an alien world. But that's because technology was catching up with the art that already existed, right? right. Like thanks right. to these artists in the Renaissance, we knew what it could be. Right. We knew how to represent a 3D world on a flat screen. Mm -hmm. We just didn't have the technology to do it yet. Right, right. So and, we can and, say that in, in hindsight, we can be like, yeah, you guys are so slow, but it's- I know, <laughs> I know. I mean- but That's because our technology is catching up to what they already did. Exactly, yeah. So let me, let me just put this into context just a bit. I mean, Brunelleschi had come up with the idea of linear perspective after studying the ruins of Roman temples with his friend Donatello, sometime in the 1430s. You thought I was going to make a turtle joke, didn't you? I, well, we might as well have. <laughs> okay, so Brunelleschi and Donatello are studying the Roman ruins in, sometime in the 1430s. They get their idea about linear perspective. Constantinople falls in 1453, so almost 20-some years after that. Okay. And the next part of our story begins somewhere between 1537 and 1551. So all of these ideas are ruminating for the better part of almost 100 years. Okay, yeah. Before the next stage in the evolution <laughs> comes. So while these were major shifts in thought that changed the Western world, it just seemed that they needed apparently some good incubation time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's- Well, even... I mean, there was nothing else going on in those days, right? But, like, and, and no one was scared about, you know, divine retribution. <laughs> No one was really like fighting to survive. Right, I mean, artists, right. I mean, artists were getting paid so well that I'm sure they weren't starving. Like, right, and just absolutely. Trying to figure out yeah. how to put there was food nothing else going on. I mean, <laughs> the the thing about it though, like if you look at different things, like it, it's even harder to understand like the, how these changes in thought didn't occur quicker because you have the Gutenberg printing press that started in 1440 and by 1500 printing presses were all over the continent some yeah. 20 million volumes had been printed and were out there yeah. for circulation but like i said that's just my snobby 21st century brain sure. taking well, all of this for granted also like <laughs> like if you were not if you were and i were to do this back in the those days like i would have to write you a big long letter being like hey aaron like here's my <laughs> thoughts on like right here's my thoughts on on theater development and you would be like hey ricky here's some exposition for something right and but we would have to like <laughs> give them to a courier that courier would have uh -huh. to like write off and it would yep. take it would take years for us it to would have the years. conversation that we're going to have in the next hour right <laughs> good thought ricky here carrier pigeon go <laughs> <laughs> and that would be yeah. the fast way that would be pigeon, the fast way. Pigeon would be the fast way to do it. Yes. I'm expecting a ship to come. <laughs> okay. So 
Now, as theater artists looked at the classic texts, they realized that the current technical methods of presenting plays of antiquity and potential new plays to be inspired by these works just simply didn't exist. So they had some more thinking to do about how to present plays that appeared to take place in realistic environments. So, I mean, the practicality of building actual locations on a stage was just, well, I mean, in one, it was not cost effective, obviously. So Mm -hmm. if I'm going to have a play that takes place in front of a courthouse, well, I've got to build something that represents a courthouse, but still at least looks real because that's what we're all thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Although I will, I, I, I will say, when I teach theater workshops to non-theater people, what I constantly come back to is the reason that I love theater so much is it is immediate imagination. Yes. Right? Like yes. I can walk around a bare, like I, I always do this experiment. I walk around a bare room and I and I talk about the forest that I'm in and I, I pick a flower and I smell yeah. it and I'm like, where am I? And everyone's like, you're in a forest. And I'm like, I'm in a bare room with you all, but we all just had a yep. collective moment of imagination together. Right. In fact, I could probably ask each of you what color flower I picked up. You could probably tell me about the trees I was I was looking at, but we had a collective moment of, imagine, of imagination. But you yeah. can also just say, hey, I'm in front of a courthouse <laughs> and an audience will go along with it, right? You don't have to. <laughs> It, it just adds to well, the spectacle. It adds to the spectacle. It does add to the spectacle, but I don't think you have a lot of Italian Renaissance theater artists who were thinking that obscurely. They were definitely like, okay, we have to present the real. So in this context, we are going to talk about an architect named Sebastiano Serlio. Sebastiano yeah. Serlio. Yes. Now, like Brunelleschi, Serlio, like I said, was primarily known as an architect. Somewhere between 1537 and 1551, he published the seven volumes of his best-known work titled Architettura, or translated into English, architecture. Architecture. (laughs) (laughs) And, And this is a time... Like before, like, you know, the 1800s when a title was half the page long. <laughs> it's like, what are you writing about? Architecture. <laughs> well, even in the, even the 1600s, they, you know, you had, I don't even remember the full title oh, of Newton's God. Principia, right? Because it's just like, it's huge. Uh, yeah. It's just blah. And that's just, that's just to get you to read the book. Uh-huh. And it's all in Latin too. So. Right. <laughs> now. Having studied the ancient Roman architect Vitruvius's work De Architectura on architecture, which <laughs> dealt significantly with the design of theater spaces, Serlio published very briefly in the second volume of Architectura about what theater spaces should look like in the Renaissance age, very specifically applying Brunelleschi's ideas of perspective. Hmm. I will say that very much like Horace in ancient Rome... <laughs> Serlio didn't seem to tolerate too much creative interpretation of his words. <laughs> More so he, or less, was just, he was laying out a rule book, right? Yeah. Like, this is how to do sets. Right. And it was one of those situations where nobody asked. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't like, you're such a great set builder. You're a great they're, set designer. Man, Would you, could you just, you just write this down? <laughs> He just wrote a book and said, look, this is how it should go. So just do it. 
Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so more or less, I believe that Serlio understood that people would take his works and use them to further thought in the fields of design, but he was pretty rigid in his definitions. And this could have contributed to why things took so long to develop, as I hinted earlier, because it was just solidified as a school of thought. And they say, this is the way it must be done until somebody else goes, yeah, but why can't we do it another way? <laughs> I've got a question. Like, sure. Did people just follow what he said? Or were they like, Whoa. that, okay, that's your opinion, dude. Like, <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm just well, wondering how, how powerful was his rule book to the people that were already practicing? I think because the rest of the seven volumes, he classified the schools of architectural thought. And he said, these are the five ones. So it's like, you know, you've got Ionic and Doric and, uh, you know, all of, uh, all of the different kinds of style. Uh-huh. He said, this is what defines the style. And everybody went, oh, okay, that makes sense. So when he writes this other part about this is what theater needs to look like, they go, well, he seemed to know everything else. So I guess, I guess we'll just go along with it. Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would also be like, who are his connections, right? Because like if his connections were the lords and ladies of the time or the church, right? Like they would just be like, well, it was in architectura. So (laughs) that's the way we do it. Yep. Yep. And and he had studied with another famous architect who actually was like a couple of years younger than him, but he more or less stole his ideas upon his death too. So... Now, here are some things that Serlio more or less, air quotes, demanded. The floor of the stage needs to be on a level above the floor of the auditorium so people could actually see the play. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Whereas in like medieval days, everybody was just kind of on the floor or there was a little bit of a stage. It wasn't all that raised up. Serlio was actually the person that came up with the idea of the raked stage. So, yep. And, Wait, and, and, but there are plenty, and, and of, has, plenty of Greek amphitheaters, right? That did do that as well. But he's the one who solidified it in okay. this time and said, okay, I've seen it in, in old stuff. A lot uh-huh. of Greek theaters did have a flat floor, but it was slightly raised a little bit. Uh-huh. And theirs was a, a lot more mathematical in approach. So that, you know, uh, yeah. with, with consideration to acoustics. Yeah. Like you can sit in anywhere in a Greek theater and hear everything on the floor without amplification. So cool. Isn't that cool? cool. (laughs) But he's the one who came up with that. And to this day, we still have his terms upstage and downstage. So downstage is more down, upstage is further up. This is where it got kind of. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So he was the, I see where you're going. I Mm -hmm. see where you're going. Mm -hmm. Yep. See, because it's vanishing point perspective. So Mm -hmm. so he's the the one that that took the stage and... Mm -hmm took the, the upstage, the part further away from yep. the audience and raised yep. it up. Yep. Yep. Okay. And these weren't necessarily acting spaces. It mainly was there to show perspective. Like you still had a flat apron in, in the front of the house or in front of the stage where most of the acting would happen because if they went up the stage, uh-huh. you would watch them walk. You'd watch them walk. They would shrink. <laughs> And it's so like the, it would totally yeah. kill the illusion. Yeah, it's like that scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where the rooms tends to get smaller as they go further into the room. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. exactly the same concept. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, on this floor, 
tiles and pavement would be drawn toward a vanishing point. So you're like, okay, I'm getting perspective behind these actors who are live in front of me. And I'm seeing that behind them is a representation of something that is more realistic Mm -hmm. because of perspective. Now, he also said that there were three and only three backdrops that could be used (laughs) because of the types of theater they knew about. And they were all painted to demonstrate perspective and vanishing point. If I showed you these three, like two of them are city settings. You couldn't really tell too much difference between them unless you were in that time. One was a tragic Maybe the architecture of a state house where somebody of nobility might live looks uh-huh. a certain way because of the architecture. In Tragic, he has this, it, they're very rigid. They look like big, expensive houses. But then he's also got the comedy backdrop, <laughs> which is also a street setting. <laughs> and the only real difference that I could see is like, well, sometimes there are curves in the architecture. So it. <laughs> It's a little bit lighter, and you can tell that maybe there's a church in the distance or something like that. But there wasn't any. Because comedy is always in marriage, so there has to be a church. Yes, bingo. Yes, okay. Oh, and in his text for the comedies, he's like, it must be in a a city square because it it doesn't necessarily deal with, you know, tragedies deal with people of nobility, comedies deal uh, with uh, people not necessarily of nobility. Uh, However, no brothels or body houses. <laughs> this is from the text <laughs> in the comedy setting. Don't show brothels, even though they were quite often used in, in particularly <laughs> Roman comedies. <laughs> okay. But don't paint them. Anyway. And then the third one was a pastoral. So it's a woodland setting where trees and bushes are just spatially recognized. And anything that wasn't specifically a tragedy or specifically a comedy, they would just maybe be shown in front of the pastoral. Okay. (laughs) Just because it's not comedy, it's not tragedy. So therefore we put it in the woods. Because once you come to the city, you either are going to have an awesome time or a terrible time. Anything uh-huh. mid lane, that's got to be in the rural area. That's got, yeah. You go out to the woods to figure your problems out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, he also invented this idea of having what he called wings. We think of the wings as just off the stage, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To the right and the left of the stage. But they come kind of from this era where since he had the right stage that went all the way to the back wall and the backdrop, he also wanted to represent dimension and depth therein as well. So these wings would be on the side of the stage. They're basically like painted flats or highly decorated flats. Okay. And because of the right stage, they had to have a bottom that was built at an angle. And therefore the top had to be built at an angle (laughs) to represent the perspective of vanishing into space. And they were highly decorated. So these flats are like shaped like rhombuses almost. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Okay. And it makes sense. It does make sense. It absolutely makes sense. To me, it also seems a little silly because you have now invented basically a you you have a floor, you've got three walls, Mm -hmm. and no one can walk in this room that you have. No, right? You have you've created a three-dimensional space that no one could go into. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I have built a diorama that everybody's gonna look at. Yeah. And you can't go in the diorama. No. 
No, no. never. <laughs> but it looks cool. Right? <laughs> I mean, dioramas are cool. They are, they are cool. pretty cool. They are very cool. <laughs> now, I'm going to get away from just the stage design stuff a little bit and actually go into the theater architecture part of the contributions. Because this, Ricky, this will start blowing your mind a little bit, like the okay. lengths that people went to. And I'm going to send you a few pictures here. Okay. The first one is the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza. Okay. Have you ever heard of this? No, but I've been to Vicenza. There we go. Just this last year. Okay. Taken from Vitruvius's writings, this building was to emulate the standard Roman theater. So if anybody's ever seen a Roman theater, basically it was, they took the auditorium idea from the Greeks, had kind of like a semicircular set of like stands for seats kind of built into a, a rock wall. Uh, but the stage was actually raised maybe two or three feet off the ground. And it had like this two to three story permanent backdrop. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. So it was, it, it looked like a street setting or a palace setting, depending mm -hmm. on how you decorated it. Was it painted or was it sculpted? It was sculpted. It was actually oh. permanently sculpted into the rock or, you know, they, they, they built columns and, uh -huh. and had yeah. this elaborate permanent hard fixture backdrop. Now mm -hmm. this, uh, Teatro Olimpico was finished in 1584, and the backdrop actually had five alleys running from the stage, running behind the stage and off into the distance. So the, the, these are three-dimensional alleys that you yeah. can just run down. Well, I'm going to go ahead and send you <laughs> okay. a picture of the Teatro Olimpico. I want you to just kind of describe what you're seeing there. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking at, I mean, for anyone who's been to like Italy or like a, a fancy opera. So you have like the ceiling is decorated. It's got mm -hmm. tiles that look painted. Yep. Uh, the walls themselves have statuary in them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's like, okay. So there's centered center stage, like yep. up center mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah, seems to go basically be an alleyway that just goes into the distance. Yep. Yep. Uh -huh. So that the stage there is maybe about, I think it's 18 feet deep as I read. Okay. So the alleyway behind that, that goes directly off center stage is about 40 more feet. What? Yeah. No way. No and way. It's... Cause then, cause then off stage left and stage right, there are two more alleys, but they, they are angled <laughs> so that you can't see where they go. Yep. And they yeah. all have raked floors. Yeah. Right. And, and the one in the center has a raked ceiling. So it's going downward Down, yeah. to a vanishing point. Yeah. And down these alleyways, there are no exits. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, because I guess if because if it's as raked as it looks, right, because it yep. to me, it looks painted. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look three dimensional at all. It looks like a backdrop. Right. Of an alley. So if that mm -hmm. is three dimensional, there's no way you could walk down that because yes, no. you would be you would be really Wonka. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be the amazing growing getting, man. Getting giant as you were like walking up instead of back. Exactly, yeah. and and you, the only place you can leave that stage is off of stage right. And this took about twenty years to build. And yeah, I can see that if it's the, all three dimensional, <laughs> the original architect died before it could be completed and one mm -hmm. of his apprentices finished it very italian yeah and here's something amazing about this 
it has a 3000 seat capacity. Whoa, seriously? <laughs> yeah, because it has that that Greek uh, amphitheater style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's raked seating and everything, and it's all just flat stone benches that are in semicircular patterns. So it's, yeah. <laughs> wow. But how many different, uh, you know, plays could be staged there? Any number. Any number, sure, why not? As long as they take place <laughs> in a city. In a city where you can only enter and exit one place. <laughs> So primarily today, it's a concert hall. <laughs> sure, gorgeous. It's it is. Gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> as far as right, like like imagine <laughs> for for those of you who are listening, just imagine what you like an, an opera hall in Italy, right? Uh-huh. Like just imagine the statues, imagine the colors, imagine the ceiling. That's what I was looking at. Yep. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous, but. Fairly impractical. Um, <laughs> now, the next one I'm going to show you is the Teatro dell'Antica in the town of Sabionetta, which was finished in 1588. Okay, now, this is designed by the same person who finished the Teatro Olimpico, and this one took the idea of perspective just a little bit farther. So I'm going to send you a couple of these. This one only has like a, a 250 seat capacity, but I'm going to send you that picture here. Okay, so it's semicircular. There mm-hmm. are like there are columns. Oh yeah, all around it. With mm-hmm. at the very top of the columns, you see the the statues, pr- presumably of Greek gods looking down or whatever. Yep. Um, and then below those columns, you have, gosh, it <laughs> looks like like the Roman Senate, right? Like yeah, because there's there's a door in the very at the bottom of this very back. And then yep. on either side of it, there are these semicircular, looks like benches. Yeah, they're like terraces. Up. Yeah. And that's where the audience sits. Yeah. That's where the audience sits. That's make that yeah. makes made more sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, you can only fit 250 people in there. But it was the idea of like being able to have people sit in different places and still be able to see perspective on the stage. So speaking mm. of perspective on the stage, now, so now you're looking, if you're sitting in the audience and looking at the stage. Uh-huh. Now I feel like I'm looking at a street, but mm-hmm. I feel like I'm the size of a mouse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm the size oh. of a mouse and there's, there's these giant towering buildings <laughs> above me. Yep. So you can kind of see there, there's a little bit of an area for the actors to actually perform. And there are two buildings, one on each side of the stage where mm-hmm. behind it, there are exits for them to go on and off stage. Mm-hmm. But behind those buildings... There's even more sets of buildings. Uh-huh. The stage and the stage is raked. That's right. Yep. And the buildings are built to grow to smaller dimensions as they reach closer to the vanishing point. Yeah, I would imagine that if I was standing next to those buildings, I would just <laughs> you'd look at the roof and the roof would probably be at a 45 degree angle. Right. <laughs> So 250 people can witness this one very rigid street scene uh-huh. <laughs> that uh-huh. you can kind of see there's a place for like a backdrop that you could hang Surlio's painted backdrops, but everything is running directly to one vanishing point and the buildings are just, it's almost like, it feels like they're mini golf buildings. 
Yeah. <laughs> but but, but if all you were slanted, standing, all slanted, so slanted. That you, so that it looks like they go off in a distance, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Although, like, yeah. I, cool idea. You'd be like, wow, that's really cool. And then you would go to actually putt and you'd be like, the ball keeps rolling back because I'm putting. I'm trying to putt uphill. So I'm going to send you one more, which it actually is pretty cool and kind of goes, it's a transition back into how we do scenic design stuff, okay? This is the Teatro Farnese in Parma, which was completed in 1618, okay? So I'm going to send you a view of the seating area first. So if you're looking at, like you're standing uh, on the stage, you're looking out at the house. Oh, okay. So it's another huge yep. semicircular amphitheater. Mm-hmm. And it's got a big with, floor, giant yep. columns. Yeah, huge. If that's a person standing in that doorway, it's a yeah. huge floor. Yeah, like you yeah. could you could have like a dance company of like fifty people running around down there at least. And there are some really cool innovations that I'm going to tell you about with this one. But here's here's a view okay. of the from the audience to look at the stage. Okay, so it, I feel like I'm at a hockey game. I know. <laughs> Because there's this huge flat stage about the size of a hockey rink. Yeah. Uh, and in the back, it looks like there's a proscenium where you could have backdrops. Yep. Yep. And you just hinted at something. This is often credited as the first theater in Europe to have a proscenium arch. Really? Yeah. 1688. Oh, wait. 1618. Yeah. 1618. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, there are other reports that other places had them, but this is the first one that everybody remembers. Uh-huh. So, yeah. What oh, city ahead. was this again? What city Par- is this again? Parma. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to send you one more picture that gets us more back into the idea of how to do perspective. It is a plan, a, mm-hmm. a floor plan of the Teatro Farnese. Oh, I was right. There is a ton of, uh, it, it looks like there can be a ton of backdrops. Yep. Yep. So what you're seeing there is past the proscenium arch. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's like the the framing of the stage so that it's where the be- big red curtain is. That's where the big red curtain is. Yeah. So behind that, there is a space that is almost as large as the theater house itself, the auditorium, where there are slots for putting wings and different backdrops, because at some point, Somewhere along the line, scenic designers didn't so much to, they didn't so much reject Surleo's wing system. They just went, hey, wait a minute. Instead of elaborately decorating oddly shaped wings and having a raked stage, why don't we just paint in perspective? Right? (laughs) (laughs) We Wait, we could paint a backdrop and like a couple- Paint it. In, in like a month rather than take 20 years to build something? Oh. Yeah. yeah, but here's the thing though. So theater stages began having incredibly deep spaces behind the proscenium arch to achieve this illusion of perspective. So, I mean, if uh, just for example, like the, the picture of this Teatro Farnese, you know, if you're saying, I feel like I'm at a hockey rink because there's this huge space where people can sit on the floor and they're surrounded uh, by the built-in seating, yeah. The, if you look at the plan, it's just as long as that house. So all of the acting would probably take place very close to the proscenium arch, but just for the illusion of perspective, you've got the back wall like almost 
40 to 50 feet, maybe even 100 feet from the proscenium arch. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, I've performed in school auditoriums where it's kind of, I mean, I've, where it's kind of like that, where you just, you're right up at, right up next to the audience. You don't want to uh-huh. use too much behind you, but yeah. that's more for acoustics than it is. Yeah, right. Else. <laughs> now, the uh, sides of the stages had groupings of painted flats that could be changed to represent new locations in the story. And the, <laughs> the flats were either like on wheels, so they could just be moved off, or the theater actually built in grooves into the floor so you could just like set a flat in it and move it off once the next scene had to take place. Mm. So they actually built in systems to just move flats on and off stage. I so mean, it makes sense to me. It absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Now, you have a practicality problem here. With each grouping of flats, I mean, if you're looking at this picture, there's probably like 10 rows or so of sure. different flats in distance to show perspective. Uh-huh. You have to have just as many workers on each side of the stage to move all those flats at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so here we come with another theater uh, maker, Giacomo Torelli, who is known as the Great Wizard. Ooh. He created a system where you didn't have to have these stage workers. He invented a mechanism that was beneath the stage. It, I think it was like right under the apron of the stage is a crank. And it ran to all, of, like it had an axle that went all the way through the, the long part of that deep space in the stage. And it had chains that went to wheels. So you crank the one uh. crank and all of the scenes move at the same time. That is so cool. Built that in 1640. That is so cool. (laughs) Right? They're like, okay, so we've established that a theater space has to be incredibly deep to be able to achieve perspective Uh (laughs) instead of just painting a big damn backdrop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we had a problem where we couldn't find enough people to run this all the time. So we invented a machine to make it happen. Man, the fly system has, just makes that right? seem so silly. <laughs> right? <laughs> Giacomo Torelli in 1640 invented this system and made his fortune on it. Whoa. Like this became the thing all over Europe. Everybody went, well, we have to have this in our theater now. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So wait, 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 wait. He yeah. invented a machine that puts stage hands out of work? Yep. And that was happening in the 1600s. Yep. See, see, people, it's been happening all the time. <laughs> it's been happening for it's been happening for for mm-hmm. hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And this this system is called the pole and chariot system. The pole ran up the back of the flat, and it sat on a chariot below the stage. So pole and chariot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I imagine those. I imagine that those wings and the backdrops had to be pretty light, right? Oh like, God! Like, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. when Serlio was suggesting his, you know, angled flats on the raked stage, he would elaborately decorate those wings. Like if it's supposed uh-huh. to be a street scene, it looked like a street scene. They would carve yeah. it out of wood or, or, you know, even stone yeah. at some points. But yes, these are just light on canvas and mm-hmm. painted to look like the next next space in visual spatial reasoning. Sure, sure. <laughs> 
so it doesn't because at first I was like, man, you would have to have, you know, like your disfigured monster, like cranking that thing under the stage. Mm -hmm. But no, it's basically you're you're just moving a bunch of paintings, right? Like, yeah, they're yep. giant paintings. They're giant so, paintings. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, yeah. you just need someone burly down there. Oh, uh -huh. yep. Now, I'm going to tell a couple more things about Torelli because as I was researching these, I was like, this, these are just funny things. Now, you were kind of shaming him for putting people out of work. So I think the next couple things I'm going to tell you about him. Uh, I wasn't I think, shaming him. I was just <laughs> observing. Just observing the systemic undervaluing of stage workers. You're sure. Or, or, or it's just like, if this is the development that we're going to have, then we're going to use those stage workers for something else, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they'll be painters now, so we can do mm -hmm. more theater. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Or they, they're going to have to, like, oil the, the, the pole and chariot. Oh, yep. Now we've created a new a, a new job, the technician, <laughs> the, the maintenance person. I love it. Okay. Here's a, here's a big quote. Uh -huh. In 1645, Torelli, now internationally renowned, was invited to Paris to stage an opera sponsored by the royal family. So the royal family asked him to come do an opera for them. Okay. When he found out that he was expected to work on this with an Italian Commedia dell'arte troupe, he considered it an indignity and unavailingly protested to the queen. See, you do need, <laughs> you do, need to do an episode on Commedia now. Yep, absolutely. Because for me, I'm like, oh, okay, I can see that, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But like anyone else is like, <laughs> why is that an indignity? You're like, oh. well, because, you know, fart jokes and stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like if someone's mm -hmm. like, I'm going to make some theater, and they're like, here's a bunch of comedians. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's, I think comedia is an amazing art form, right? Yep. Like the yep. clowning in it is just it's brilliant. Phenomenal. It's and the brilliant. mask and the mask work. Mm -hmm. Like until you start working with masks, you have no idea how difficult they are. They oh, are incredibly yeah. difficult to make expression with. Yep. Yep. And so I find comedia at a really high art form, but I yeah. can see this person being like, you're gonna be, <laughs> I, I gotta work with I gotta work with the Looney Tunes. <laughs> yes. Techno Queen. <laughs> and she put it down. Now, ironically, the opera La Finta Pazzo, or The Fake Madman, was a great success at court and hastened the adoption of Torelli's scenic innovations in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so he's protesting. They're like, uh, quit being such a bitch about it, but we're going to take your ideas. <laughs> you don't have no. to show up, but <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll give you the credit for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got the patent. You're going to get money for it. So, yeah. All right. Now, Torelli was married to a French noblewoman, and because he was apparently close to Cardinal Mazarin, the king's Italian minister, Torelli, as a person, was not very popular in Paris, despite obviously hating Commedia. Here's another quote from <laughs> Torelli. When Mazarin died in 1661, Torelli was ordered to leave France, and most of his French designs were destroyed by Gaspar Vagarani, a rival Italian designer at court. <laughs> However, Torelli's drawing survived. So this, this Vigorani broke all of his devices and anything mm -hmm. he was working on, but the uh, drawings later survived and were published late in the 18th century. Hmm. 
<laughs> so like a couple hundred years later. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and Torelli Ter- returned to the Italian city of Fano, his birthplace, and staged his last production in 1677 and died in 1688. Mm. And that is pretty much all of my findings on Italian perspective in scenic design. Like what was going on in 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 England, right? Because like, okay. this is con- this is contemporary with Shakespeare, right? So you have the yep. globe. Yeah, a little earlier, but yes, around the same time. Yeah, yeah. England went more with the written works, and their stage design was not not a big deal. Hmm, okay. like most of it was outdoor theater anyway, and sure, uh, yeah. and pretty much they were all built kind of in the same vein, you know, that circular design with the stage mm-hmm. in one hand and kind of like this, this box seating. Yeah. Um, but so, they didn't try to incorporate perspective at all? No, not really. Uh, okay. I hit on that a few episodes ago. Oh, yeah, uh, with John Dennis's Thunder, where these two rival groups in the Restoration Age... So, you know, almost 100 years after this, and one group did, you know, classical works and the other group did more new works, but they had, they moved flats on and off stage. And that was a big shocker and huge spectacle to the British theater audience. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually, like you were suggesting, yeah, we invented the fly system, which is, you know, where the sets and everything are stored up above the stage. And, um, you know, we can drop them in at certain times. But man, I just, (laughs) I I have to give them huge props. Mm -hmm. But at the same time going, guys, there's a really a lot easier way to do this. (laughs) It's it's gorgeous and impractical. Can we use the right stage? No, no. just don't. Yeah, it ruins, like you said, it ruins <laughs> the illusion completely. Unless you have the power to gradually shrink yourself as you go away from the stage. <laughs> I mean, it it, it kind of speaks more to the fact that of like it wasn't about the story as much, right? Yeah, but it, it was a it was you, you went there to see a piece of visual art. Yeah, live live visual yeah. art. It was live visual art. Mm -hmm. is what it was yeah which is probably why i can't think of any plays from that time (laughs) no yeah i mean the plays like i said they weren't that great because they were written like well they were probably written to fit the theater space It, it, it was amazing that that just the idea of linear perspective gave them so much to work with and so many ideas to chew on, but it just made the practice of theater fairly impractical. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, I mean, you know, when when they show up in the Restoration Age and they take one eight by four painting off stage and everybody goes, ooh, ah. <laughs> like the Italians uh-huh. over there going, oh, we have been doing this for years. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you using stage hands? Just use a crank. Just use a crank. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. But it's like, again, like I said, we go from the 1430s to 1618 and beyond. Mm-hmm. And the idea is just, I don't know if they were just like, oh, we're going to try them out for a while. <laughs> you know? It's like, let's let's give this a good old college try of about 50 years. <laughs> or people are like, we do it. We're going to do it the way we've always done it. Right. 
Right. Right. I mean, well, I but also, but also looking at your pictures, that took an incredible amount of money and artistry, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you, you can't just have like a scrappy experimental company being like, well, let's try this perspective thing. Right. 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 You have I'm to be someone being like, I'm going to build this giant building. And, and now I, I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring the economic side of all of this. Yeah. And, and again, like we had to have all that exposition to lead to visual perspective. We also have to take into consideration that you had very wealthy people who were just buying society as they saw mm -hmm. fit. The Medici's, for example, <laughs> like mm -hmm. they controlled so much. And if they said, I want this theater to be this way, I'm going to pay for it. How many other people out there are, like you said, coming up with ideas and they just don't have the scratch or the political power to stand up sure, to that? Sure. Well, like, and then also, like you said, that one theater took 20 years to build, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. in the span of that 50 years between yep. innovation, because like, okay, we're going to take 20 years, we're going to build this theater. Great. Okay. We're going to make theater, we better use it for about 50 to 70 years to get our money. <laughs> and then, okay, now let's try something else. Yeah, right. Yeah. We've done that for a while. Let's do yeah. this new thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, Ricky, there you go. STEM in the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. And don't tell me we can't don't tell me we can't put an A in that and, and have people learn steam. Heck yeah. So that's right. That's right. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you, Ricky, so much for being on the program. I appreciate it. And for thanks for inviting people. me. Absolutely. Love to have you on again sometime. But those of you listening, this is Aaron Odom signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities. I'll be back in another two weeks with a full-length episode, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>